the reading of the Old Covenant, Old Testament, is from Psalm 69. And then for the sermon text, I'll turn to Romans 15, verses 1 to 6 in Romans 15. But first, the entire Psalm 69, which Paul quotes from in Romans. Let's hear the living word of the living God. To the choir master, according to Lilies, of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let those who hope in you, let not those who hope in you, Through me, O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor. Through me, O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. Look I look for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation on them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him 
whom you have struck down. They recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Here ends the reading of Psalm 69. If you care to read now, I'm going to turn to Romans 15. Verses 1 to 6 of Romans 15. (coughs) The word of the living God from the new covenant. Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you, fell on me. For For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here ends the reading of God's word for this evening. I'm going to make a humble, hopefully humble attempt at summarizing chapters 1 to 14 of Romans. Uh, Yeah, you can laugh. Uh, The first 12 or 13 chapters of Romans is a description of God who created everything good and very good and then is rejected by all human beings. They all have turned aside. They are all sinners. They've rebelled against God and they all deserve God's wrath. There is no one who does what God wants. No, not one. And God who is just must punish sin. And then there's Christ's work, which is described by Paul in several chapters. To summarize that, 
he was sent by God. He, the Son of God, became a human being to accomplish a rescue mission, a redemption, a salvation, to spare those who would accept the promise of forgiveness that is offered to the world who would trust in the work of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul describes in wonderful language. And then Paul goes on in the other chapters after the first 12 chapters, chapters 13 and 14 before chapter 15 that I read, to describe the problem in the church in Rome. It's a serious problem. There are Christians there who are called the weak ones. They do not understand that they can eat anything or drink anything. The strong Christians understand, according to Paul, that Paul himself knows everything is clean now. We can eat anything. We don't have to have the dietary laws. We don't have to only eat vegetables at certain times and so forth. And so Paul is aware that the strong Christians in Rome have got it right, but the weak Christians have got it wrong. But the weak Christians and the strong Christians are not loving each other. They are despising each other. So, he has already in chapter 13 and 14 described what they should do in some detail. But here, here Paul gives essentially the essence of what he wants them to do, those Christians in who are conflicted over doctrine. They're not conflicted over the gospel because if they were conflicted over the gospel, if one part of the church in Rome believed another gospel, a heretical gospel, he would have said, get them out of the church. He would not said, have said they're weak and you know, be, be with them in some sense. So this passage, this entire passage of six verses has two parts. Part one is verses one to four, which are commands that Paul gives the church. And then he has a wish or a prayer that he offers up to God in verses 5 and 6. So there's this prayer or this wish that Paul makes for the church in Rome, and before that there's these four verses of commandment. Um, I want us to first think about Paul's prayer. Because Paul's prayer, his wish is to God. May God do something. And it is the summary of what Paul wants the church to do no matter what, And so it is the most important passage of what a Christian should be and do in summary form, perhaps even of all of New Testament scripture. And Paul gives a reason for it. But he also gives the commands, but let's look at the prayer first. So, what's the problem? You you could say the problem is there's weak Christians who have the wrong doctrine, and we need to correct them. That's true, you do need to correct them. And the weak Christians might say that the strong Christians are too loose with their behavior. They're eating and drinking anything without any qualms. The strong might reject the weak because the strong know the doctrine and they know there's no problem with eating and drinking at all anymore. And so, does Paul just want them to get along and sort of bury the hatchet and say, well, let's let bygones be bygones or whatever, Is that his solution to say, now just get along? And is he saying what he wants them to do for their good? 
Well, yes, there's a sense in which he's saying it, for your good you should get along. But that's not the ultimate reason he gives. And it's interesting when God gives commands, some people say, well, if God commanded it, that's all I need to know. You know, don't commit murder. All right, I got that. I don't need to know why. Or don't commit adultery. You know, God gives command. Here, Paul is giving the authoritative command of God to the church in Rome, and he's giving reasons, deep, profound reasons, which affect the life of the church every single day, every week, every month of the year of every church. So here's his prayer. This is his prayer to God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, so he's asking God to grant them, the church in Rome, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul wants is a gift from God. May God grant it, not just human effort. He's not saying, now you've heard me tell you this, now go and do it. You know, I've given you the doctrine, I've given you the encouragement, you know, I've given you these commandments. But he is actually ending his brief four verses of commands with this prayer. And so this prayer is the crucial part of what Paul wants for them. And he's asking God to do it. If Paul was just telling him to be good and, you know, he would get along with the other people in some sort of human sense, he would have said that. Just, just stop it. He wouldn't have asked God to do what he has asked God to do. And it wouldn't have been the same as what ends up being what Paul is asking for. What Paul wants cannot be accomplished by human effort alone. So even though he's given these commands, which we'll look at, which are what people should do in the church, he is saying, may God grant you to live in harmony, to glorify God. By themselves, the people in Rome and anywhere cannot just stop being divided and divisive by somebody saying, now cut it out. Paul is praying to God because he knows this does not happen by human effort alone. It does not happen by somebody saying, well, we'll we'll bring swords to the church and we'll kill those people. We'll wound them if they don't cooperate. And he's not saying, oh, you need to get, maybe you need the emperor or the governor of the Roman Empire to come in and settle your disputes. Maybe you need to get him to come in and just say, shut up, church, get along. He's not even saying human powers with with the power that God has given the, the civil magistrate, the Roman emperors and governors. He's not saying get them to come in to get you to straighten out and shape up. So it's not by human rulers. It's not by human wisdom. It's not by force of fist or sword or gun. And it's not even by law. It's not saying, you guys in the church in Rome, you need to pass a law. Thou shalt get along with each other. End of conversation. That's a law. It's the 11th commandment. No, Paul is aware that if it happens alone, it's going to be because God does it. God is involved. God is doing it. It's not the bare commands, the first four verses of this chapter, which are commands. It's not just them alone. Praying to God, because it is essential that God be involved in this crucial aspect of the Christian church. In other words, 
there's any change for the church in Rome, it will be because God is involved in it. And if God chooses to do it, they will obey the commandments that he gives in the first four verses. And they will achieve what God and Paul know is the greatest work of any human being who's ever existed by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God, God will recreate human beings into the image of Jesus Christ more and more. What does Paul wish for? He wishes for God to be glorified. Harmony of heart, sympathy of emotions, unity of mind, and so forth are the way you get to glorifying God with one voice. He says, live in harmony with one another. And he doesn't stop there. He says, live, he writes, live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Where is he just throwing Jesus in there for some strange reason? No, he's saying it's not just harmony like, you know, we have, oh, we all have something in common. We love rock and roll or we love classical music. And so we have harmony about what we like about music. No, that's not it. He's saying we have harmony with each other in accord with Jesus Christ, with Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? He's explained it in verses 2 and 3, which I'll refer to now before we go to the commands. Christ did not please himself, but pleased others for their good. Now, think about it. Did Jesus Christ come to earth to please other people in any sense? Yes, he healed the sick. He did miracles. He did all sorts of preaching and teaching. And it was for their good. He didn't gain anything from it. He gave it for them, for their good. He wanted to please them. What was the response? They hated him for no reason. But that wasn't Jesus' problem. It was their problem. So Paul wants Christians to have the heart that Christ had for other people. Paul wants Christians to have the love that Christ had for other people. Paul wants Christ's love and sympathy, which goes beyond just understanding doctrine. You can know the Bible and you can have all the theology absolutely right, like the strong do in this church in Rome. The strong have it right. But going beyond understanding it in your mind, you have to, Paul is saying, have a changed heart in order to Touch other people in a good way. So Paul wants them to have the unity of understanding the fundamentals of the gospel. The gospel is not at stake in this controversy, in this church in Rome. They're all people who believe Jesus died for them. They believe that it is by grace, through faith in Christ alone, all the solas, sola faith, sola grace, sola Jesus Christ, They are all believing that. They are believing that Jesus was real and he really accomplished redemption and they're trusting in that and they know they have eternal life. They have the spirit of Christ in them. And he wants them to have that understanding and that heart set afire by the Holy Spirit so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together with one voice, one accord, one mind, sort of unanimous in this. This language is this language of 
um, of, of the whole church being united or having to come to one accord. Though that language is there in other parts of Scripture. When they had the controversy in the early church in Acts 15, the controversy is, what do we do? Never mind what the controversy was. Listen to what happened when they had one mind in that early church with the apostles there. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. It seemed good. There's a controversy in the church, and it seems good to the apostles and elders and the whole church to choose from among them men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Listen to this letter. There's a deep controversy in the early church. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. They came to one accord. This is, they're not saying, we have an opinion and this is a suggestion. No, they have a conviction. There's been trouble in those churches, and they have come to a conviction, and they are unanimous. This is what you need to know. They have conviction. Where else do we see some sort of united sort of behavior? If you listen to my call to worship from Revelation, you will find the description of heaven and the worship in heaven as a great number of creatures, angels, archangels, seraphim, the dead who are now in the presence of Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Talk about a diverse group. Every nation, from all tribes, peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. No one in heaven at that point is saying, no, that's your opinion, I disagree. It's really more subtle. No, they're not. They're saying, absolutely, we totally agree. And our hearts and our minds and our voices are saying what we all believe. We are convinced, we have the conviction that this is absolute truth. Salvation does belong to our God and to the Lamb. Paul wants strong and the weak, to have unity around the core belief about Christ and his church, the gospel. And the unity of mind that is in heaven with their worship starts here now. That is the work of God, making disciples for Jesus Christ, that you would understand there is something more important than anything else in the church's life and an individual Christian's life, And that is that you would glorify God with your brothers and sisters, with one mind. You would be totally convinced of the essentials of the gospel. And Paul wants the church in Rome to begin to experience 
what they've been called to be and do. Not focusing on, oh, who's weak and who's strong and resenting each other because they don't agree on some doctrines. It should be every church's goal, ultimately, without any debate, to be totally convinced that the church's goal is to glorify God, period. There would be unity around that goal. Their hearts and their minds and their very souls and their beings would be focused on doing that. It's similar to what Paul said in Romans 12, where he wrote, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying these are the essential, most important things that any human being in any millennia is called to do. So that's the goal. Then he gives, verses 1 to 4, he gives the commands, which must be done for the harmony of heart and mind to happen. He gives God, he, the great creator, gives some of his gifts to people through other people. Sometimes God works alone, he just does it. You you didn't get involved, you never prayed for it, and there's peace in Ukraine, perhaps. I think that's not the case. If we have peace, a just peace in Ukraine, that'll be because a lot of people prayed for it. But you might have never prayed for something, and all of a sudden you realize God just gave me that. That's not what's going on here. Paul is saying to the church in Rome, you in that church are to do these things. And then Paul says, I'm praying for you that God would give you that gift to do that. But he's saying, here's what you need to do. And there's two parts to this passage about what you need to do. And it's not unusual for Paul to say, okay, here's the commands, and now here's why you should do it. So even though he gives the commands, he gives reasons for the commands. Why do it? What's the command? It's just in verses 1 and 2. We, who are strong, Paul is one of the strong members, and so they have the right doctrine, have an obligation to bear with, and the English translation of the word says failings, and it sounds like they've sinned. If they had sinned, Paul would have said, get them out of the church if they're heretics. If their doctrine is heresy, like against the gospel, get them out. They were like the Judaizers in Galatia, and probably Paul would say, that's a false gospel. Get those, those who think they're under the law of Moses out of here. So a better translation is, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a huge difference if you've ever thought about sin versus weakness. One behavior could look exactly the same. I have a, um, a brother-in-law who had a two-year-old, has the two-year-old's grown up, but he had a two-year-old. His two-year-old was disobedient, and they kept spanking him. They were Christians. They were spanking him for his disobedience over and over again. The kid just was a disobedient kid, and they had a regular doctor checkup. The doctor checkup said, he's deaf. And they go, oh, my goodness. He couldn't hear the command. It wasn't a sin that deserved a spanking. He needed hearing aids. It looked like disobedience. So here I think you have, in the church of Rome, the weak Christians are wrong, but it's not that they're sinful. They're maybe not as bright as other people. I haven't had the 
Best teaching possible, but they need time to mature or they need some help to mature in their understanding. So we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Finger waving is there for a reason. Me too. Let each of us, Paul goes on to say, here's the second part of the community, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. How do we deal with weaknesses in the church? Paul is telling the strong to be patient with those who are weak. Even though they're wrong, you correct them. And the immature have a weak understanding. The strong are to bear with those weaknesses of the weak and not to please themselves. But the strong are to please others for their good. What is the real problem in the church in Rome? Is it doctrine? No! There's always going to be stronger and weaker people in the church who know more theology than other people and so forth. You're always going to have weak people in the church. That's not the problem. The problem that's destroying the church in Rome and can destroy churches now is selfishness. Selfishness. It's normal to have weak people in the church, but it should not be normal to have a church that's characterized by selfish people who don't care. In other words, it's the sin of selfishness that threatens the peace and harmony and unity of the church so that it cannot glorify God with one voice because they've got all these resentments and difficulties. They're thinking, well, I'm so smart. How come they aren't smart or whatever? The strong might be saying things like that. If it were not for these Christians, we'd be able to do wonderful things for God. No. You're always going to have people who aren't wonderful in somebody's mind. So by pleasing themselves, the strong are destroying the church, even though they have the right doctrine. The real problem, Paul is pointing out, is self-pleasing. Three times in this, these commands, verses 1, 2, and 3, three times Paul uses the same word, pleasing. Pleasing, pleasing. Not to please ourselves, that's a command. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Three, for, oh, here's a, for Christ did not please himself. So Christ is being held up as like, he didn't please himself. No, I, if, you ha, if you've had children and you remember when they were maybe two or so, what is the one, of, one of the things that a child will attempt? You say no to the child, whatever it is. The child throws a tantrum. The child thinks he's the center of the universe, or she. Why can't I have what I want? I'm going to throw a fit to see if it works. My wrath you will want to avoid as a two-year-old. Perhaps parents cave into that, and all of a sudden you've got a spoiled child. He's getting what he wants. child will say, it's mine. It used to be his, now it's mine, and it's all mine, mine, mine. 
And adults grow up and they say, I want my vacation, I want my job to be successful. What about my career? What about my marriage, my kids, my this, my that? So you can see that the focus is often, without we thinking about it, it's on me. God did not create create and recreate Christians to be small-minded and focusing on themselves. God, by recreating us, has given us minds and hearts that can be concerned about others and not just about me. Another way of putting it is we belong to one another. Self-pleasing is very small-minded. We are commanded. It's a command Paul is giving to the church in Rome. And I don't think there's anything about the Church of Rome that says, well, it doesn't apply to North Andover or Jaffrey, where I'm from. We are commanded to not only please ourselves, but to please others, to be careful about pleasing ourselves. Now, here's something to keep in mind. In popular culture, for the past 10 or 20 years, there's been a, a, a term that a person is called a people pleaser. Well, a people pleaser in that psychology is someone who does whatever they can to make the other person happy so that they will be loved in return. Or the person will make someone else to be happy because they don't, that person is, I'm afraid of that person, so I'll make them my boss. I'll please my boss no matter what. He asks me to steal, I'll steal. I'm a people pleaser in the popular psychology. Paul is not saying, oh, the church, you just have to be people pleasers, let people walk all over you and so forth. No. You are not commanded to please without limits. Here's the limits in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor, number one, for his good. That's good as God defines it. Number two, to build him up. Oh, two limits. Somebody wants to sin, I don't help them do that. If somebody wants to remain weak, I don't help them remain weak. And what's good varies. You you probably know this if you're a parent. What is good for a two-year-old doesn't apply to the 18-year-old. The 18-year-old has certain needs or goodnesses that are different, totally different from the two-year-old. And the other part of it is for building him up for edification. What you do to build up a two-year-old in the church or in your family is totally different from what you do to your 18-year-old to build him or her up. So this takes some thinking. How am I going to do good to you? How am I going to do good to you? How am I going to edify or build you up? And building up means you're constantly helping to build somebody up. What's the goal? The image of God reflected in Jesus Christ. It never ends. You should not please other people for their destruction, for sin. Some people would love it if you just let them do sin. Give me more money. I'll go go to, you know... Buy more drugs. And some will be pleased to let somebody remain weak. I'm not going to get involved in them. Every time I try to explain something to them about clean and unclean, they just don't get it. So I'm going to give up on that. The strong aren't called to agree with the weaknesses of the the weak theology or doctrine. They're not called to do that. When the weak are weak in their understanding... You're to come alongside them and do good to them or edify them. 
What's the reason for this command? Do not please yourself. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. What's the reason? It's in verses 3 and 4, which I read part of already. So do these commands because of this. Christ did not please himself. But as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproach you, God, fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. God gives endurance and encouragement through his written word, the writings. Whatever is written in the Bible is written for our instruction, for our edification. So that's why Paul quotes Psalm 69, because it's a beautiful picture of someone who did not, did not come to please himself. It's a picture of Christ in Psalm 69. He's hated by God. people who hate God. People who hate God hate him. Christ came to do good to everyone universally. Jew, Gentile, everyone. And the insults of those who insulted God fell on Christ. Christ did not seek to please himself. The Son of God gave up heaven and became a human being. The creator becomes one of the creatures. That's a mystery, but we have it. He came not to have people please him. The apostles sometimes were like idiots. With their, you know, Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're going to die me three times before the rooster crows. He had to constantly tell them those things for their good, to edify Peter, to edify other people. But that's a demonic thought. Don't have that. Get behind me, Satan. But it's for him to progress in his understanding, to progress in his doctrine and his heart. Christ did not only give up heaven, but he was also humiliated. And that is, you know, you can see the scriptures there in the life of Christ. He is not just hated, he's humiliated, he's mocked, he's crucified. You know the story. He did not come to earth to please himself. He fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. Nobody was even there to see it, but we know it happened because of the, the Gospels. Did he fast to please himself? Like, oh, this is something Christ did to make himself stronger? No, he did it to show that he is able to defeat Satan even when he's malnourished. That he is the one, unlike Adam who was in paradise that had everything beautiful to look at and eat. Adam wasn't even hungry. Jesus is starving in the wilderness. And he defeats the devil. And he sweated what appeared to be drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, in one of the Gospels, sends an angel to strengthen him, and he still goes in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and prays. This, this, there are some statements in Scripture that are like so, so like, whoa, that is just not even close to the truth. It's a gross understatement. Here's the grossest understatement, I think, of all of Scripture. Christ did not please himself. 
No, Christ did not please himself. He suffered agony, body and soul on the cross. Christ did not please himself. He was mocked and despised and hated for no reason, although he only did good. Now, take that statement. This is why you, the Church of Jesus Christ, should do these commandments. For Christ did not seek to please himself. And Christ wasn't even motivated by selfishness. It's not that he didn't seek it. He didn't even care about being self-centered. You... You who know the gospel, who have the spirit of Christ in you, know this is all true. I'm telling you something you should know in your heart and your mind, that this is Christ. He did not come to please himself. You are privileged just to know this truth about Christ, but here's the extra privilege. You are given the word of God and the spirit of Christ in you to be like Christ. To be like the most beautiful human being who ever existed. You can be like that by not being self-centered, selfish. This is your calling by God. Now, let me just lighten this up a little bit. Everybody, I I, I had a pastor for a while who said he likes to have heroes, Christian heroes. So he says, he said, not just in the Bible, yeah, David's a hero and so forth, but anyway, but he said, I have two dead heroes and two living heroes, Christian men, I think is what he's talking about. Maybe women too. But I have two dead heroes and two living heroes. And I thought, well, that's kind of motivating, be like them. In sports, people who play sports, I don't know if anybody here is on a team or has ever been on a team, college teams, hockey teams, soccer teams, baseball teams, whatever. You always, most people who have an affinity to either watch sports or play sports, have their heroes who are really good at soccer, really good at hockey, really good at whatever. And you look up and say, how can he possibly do that, that goal or that action? That's incredible. You, go to the, you watch the Olympics, show. how did they do that flip? That's incredible. I'd like to just do a pull-up or something. But anyway, you, you're impressed with it, and they're your heroes. You look up to them. Well, here's the ultimate hero of heroes, Jesus. You can have no greater hero, no greater goal as a human being than to be a little more like Christ and stop being selfish and start loving and caring and doing good for others and building them up. Human beings, especially Christian human beings, have the potential to do more than simply bringing glory to themselves or making themselves comfortable or having a medal of some kind. Here's one of the strange things about sports. How many sports would say, ah, we've got these weak people in the team, but we're going to keep them. They're weak. They're they're two left-footed people in this this team. The coach says, no, no, we're going to keep those left-footed people in the team to play soccer. We're going to put them in, and they're going to play. No, every team is going to say, no, we just cut all the two left-footed people off of the soccer team. The guy who can't hit the puck twice is going to be, you know, off the team. Here's what goes on in the church. Everyone's on the team. The weak Christian may be actually better than the stronger Christian at pleasing others for their good. 
and, and pleasing others for their edification. He's got the wrong theology. He doesn't have perfect theology. But boy, can he or she say the right thing to the right person at the right time that builds them up. And you go, well, that shouldn't be. No, it should be, because everybody's in this. We're all on the team of becoming more Christ-like and helping one another to become more Christ-like, to build each other up, to do good for each other's each other. Those who seek to please themselves bring death, destruction, hurt to others. And mark my words, in the Christian church, it's the elders and pastors that do the worst. You have a pastor who is into self-pleasing. You're just a stepping stone on my career to be pope or whatever. Or you're just my stepping stone to get somewhere I want to be. My career and my income level should be where I'm headed because God wants me to be the new Martin Luther or the new John Calvin. And the guy may be incredibly smart, but he destroys churches. Destroys them because of his self-seeking and his ignoring. He might say, well, I'm going to work with the smartest men in the church. Right? I'm going to really invest time and effort to the really smart ones. They know the theology. I'm going to work with them, and they will be the leaders of a glorious you know, new thing in this church. And I'm going to ignore the ones who are weak and don't understand and you know, maybe they're handicapped or whatever. There's all sorts of reasons why you could ignore people by taking the approach of, I'm running a business here, and I'm the CEO. Self-pleasing can destroy churches, especially in leadership. They walk past others who are weak, or they walk over others who are weak, and they destroy churches and even individuals. They insist on their own agenda. Their agenda is not what Paul has here. I want everybody, as many people as possible in this church, to be united in the focus of worshiping God with one voice and praising Brothers and sisters, this doctrine of Paul's here, this this idea that he's presenting to us, is the most glorious idea that you could have. That you, someone who is born in darkness and sin, are given a new life, a new nature, and that that new nature has the most important role in God's mind and Jesus' mind, which is to be united to glorify God, period, exclamation mark, in worship, in your life, everywhere. And you don't do it alone. No. No Lone Ranger Christians. Nobody goes it alone. Don't expect to find it in a monastery or a nunnery or some retreat for six years from Christian worship. Let's pray. Father, we are we are a people who it can we can be pleasing ourselves too much. I do ask, as Paul did. May you, God, 
grant to everyone in this room to live in such harmony with one another in this church in accord with the love they have and knowledge they have of Jesus Christ that together this church may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.